Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. is Doug Manning, and our topic is the gift of significance. In 1982, Doug started a new career after 30 years as a minister and was one of the early pioneers in the study of grief. His work began when a friend said, after losing her young daughter, don't take my grief away from me. This became the title of his first book and started him on the road to his second career. He has published over 30 books and for 24 years has traveled the world as a lecturer and counselor. His words bring comfort to the bereaved as he acknowledges the significance of their loss and the long journey of grief. Welcome to the show, Doug. I'm glad to be here. Hi, Doug. It's great to have you. Now, you're in Oklahoma, right? Yes. Yeah, and Heidi's in New York, and I'm in uh, California. So We're covering the world. <laughs> we <Yeah>. are, <laughs> and, our, and our wonderful uh, Voice America who records this for us is in Phoenix, Arizona. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's a pretty amazing uh, thing that we have going here. So, Doug, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into the area of grief and loss, and uh, and then we'll go on and hear all about all these things that you're doing. Okay. Uh, basically, uh, I, as Heidi said, uh, I was a minister, and uh, I had a family, uh, had a child become ill, became worse during the day. They took the child to the doctor. The doctor put the child in the hospital under oxygen, sent the husband home to take care of the other baby in the home, in the home. And in 30 minutes, that child died. Wow. And uh, the mother, of course, was hysterical, and, and, and the doctor was trying to calm her down, and her husband was trying to calm her down, and she stopped and looked at them and said, don't take my grief away from me. I deserve it, and I'm going to have it. Mm, I love that. And I was not there, and I was glad I wasn't, because had I been there, I would, in, I would have been in on the team trying to calm her down, because back then, that's exactly what I thought I was supposed to do. And so you would have been reason, trying to take her grief away as well? Sure, and for mm-hmm. some reason it really hit me that I had spent my life doing that, that I'd been trying to cheer everybody up. I'd been trying to get them so that they didn't grieve. And and all of a sudden it hit, you know, it hit me that I, here I was a minister dealing with us all the time and I didn't know anything about it. So I started reading about it. Well, that was in the 70s. I think I could find three books mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s, and, and they were not very good, but I did find three books. And uh, and I didn't know what else to do, so I just started getting people together that had lost someone, had suffered a death. So I and in that I guess I started some of the first grief groups because I didn't know what groups were uh, in that, at that time. And uh, out of that, then began to study it more and more and more, and then began to write about it, and then began to uh, go from there. And basically, I tell everybody I'm not an expert. I have, I've lost a grandson. Mm-hmm. But I'm still not an expert on grief because I don't think there are any. I, I think. How long ago did you lose a grandson? I lost a grandson 10, 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, it very, I, I just uh, I actually lived a, just a very short time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but the uh, but but I, but I say there are no experts on grief because I, you know grief. So you were. Let me say you were really um, moving in this direction before your grandson died. Yes, I was. I had been writing about it and, tr- and speaking about it for a long time. Yeah. Do you feel like that's some kind of preparation? Interestingly enough, 
Well, it, you know, that's hard to say. Uh, for years and years and years, when I would speak to compassionate friends, I would always have to answer that question because compassionate friends uh, have a tendency to feel like that if you haven't walked in their shoes, you really don't know, and to a great degree, they're exactly right. Uh, but for some reason, they allowed me there, and I don't know why. Uh, but they were always very gracious to allow me to come and talk and didn't necessarily feel that way uh, because basically i have i think I, I think the only thing that the only thing that I have done is I've listened very carefully, and so I've just collected stories and just you know I, I tell everybody I'm not an expert I've just listened to a lot of stories, and most of what I know I know because somebody's told me what they experienced and what the experience was. I still haven't felt it. And it didn't feel like- it's very interesting to me that you are able to even listen. So many people cannot listen to this if they haven't had the experience. It's just it's too hard to hear. Right, and they try to interrupt it by making it better. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, I don't know how I did that. Uh, it just developed over over a period of time, and uh, I just kept doing groups and kept listening and uh, kept you know walking with people in the, in the process and. Uh, then I wrote the book "Don't Take My Grief Away From Me" in 1980, and uh, uh, it is still being sold, uh, which is amazing to me. And I'd like to change every word in it, but <laughs> you don't dare touch it. Well, know? and looking at your website and everything you've said, you really get it, which is amazing because you understand grief. You understand what people are going through. I mean, you talk about the three H's: hang around, hug them, and hush. Yeah, I picked that I up too. I love that. Yeah. Say that because again. That's what we want people to do. We want people, like you said, Doug, to hang around us. We don't want them to all of a sudden disappear from our lives. We want them to give us a hug, and we want them to hush. We don't want them to try to make it better. They can't. That's right. We want them to stay in our lives and be there for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess all, every, what happened when I started, I, the thing that kept ha- hitting me was I, you don't take people's grief away from them. Uh, and it finally dawned on me that grief is not an enemy to be avoided is a process that we walk through or walk into. I don't think we ever get through it, and and that that uh, that the that the best thing to do with grief is grieve. Uh, you know that that that's that's how you <laughs> that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Instead of uh, thinking, giving you a new way to think, and therefore that there you'll feel different. Uh, and somehow I discovered that you can't just change the way somebody feels by changing the way they think. Mm-hmm. So, so we heal ourselves by actually going through the grief and feeling it and yes. moving through it and expressing it. Okay. And sharing it and and you know finding ways to to deal with all the feelings that come. And and I'm finding that uh, I, you know I'm finding like I say I <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know that there's a, a time when it. Uh, I don't know if there's a time when you don't need some support. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm walking with a lady right now whose daughter was murdered five years, you no, know, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And everyone thinks, well, why are you still seeing her? Well, I'm still seeing her because to all the rest of the world, she's healed. Mm-hmm. I'm the only place she can come in and say, you know, it still hurts. Mm-hmm. I, I love the fact that you say you're walking with her. I mean, mm-hmm. that is so that is so true. You're not ahead of her saying, I'm going to help you out, I'm going to fix you, and you're not behind her saying, you poor thing. Mm-hmm. You're just walking by her side. Yes. Yep. And it's so typical of society to think, well, it's been six or seven years. 
Why does she still need support? Yeah. I mean, I'm working with the 9-11 families, and that's very much what society thinks. Well, it's been five and a half years. I don't understand why they still need support. <laughs> yeah. People don't get that it's a long journey, and we do need support. Yeah. Yeah, the 9-11 families even have it a lot worse because their loved ones are missing and presumed dead. Right, yeah. They just went to work one day and never came home. Exactly. And uh, uh, that, you know, that's, that's tremendously tough. Mm-hmm. Now, who who stood by you and walked with you with your grandchild dying? Well, uh, the the support groups that I was working with, you know, I, I the people that I was already working with, I, I just, you know, it, it I just began to deal with them also, and mm-hmm. they dealt with me. They walked with me. Uh, plus the fact that my wife, of course, because we worked through all this, she understands this process very well. And uh, uh, we were very, very, very supportive of each other. And did you feel like you needed to help your children because they had had the loss? I, I either your daughter or your son had, had the loss of a child, right? It was my daughter. Yes. Okay. And, yes, and and we have done that, and now she mm-hmm. has also she's she does grief group work, and she's uh, getting very deeply involved in it, and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's helping her because right. you know. Uh, you, you, as you begin to help somebody else, you begin your story begins to be clearer. Oh, I like that. As you begin to help someone else, your story begins to be clearer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for the families that you've seen, we're talking maybe to some new, really newly bereaved audience here. As far as helping others, do you have any thoughts for them on the, the very early months? I mean, sometimes people feel like they have to get out and do something. Yeah, the. Uh, yeah, in the very early months, I, I think the the, uh, uh, the the thing that I say to most people is, uh, if I if you, if you nail me down and say, what do people need in grief? The first thing they need is safety. And how long ago was it that your child, uh, grandson, eleven, 11 years? Was it a grandchild or a grandson? It, it was a grandson born on Christmas Eve and died Christmas Day. Wow! wow. And, and what was his name? His name was Isaac. Isaac. Oh, I like that name. Yeah. And so um, that's something coming up for you. Um, something yes. we might talk about a little bit for just a minute um, is a holiday coming up. How do you how do you deal with that um, with Isaac? Do you do anything special? Well, we we have a ceremony our, that we uh, because ceremonies speak when words fail, and and mm, like uh, ceremony becomes very important. And so uh, that this this Sunday we we will all gather at my home. Where the family will open all the gifts, you know, and and uh, before we do anything else, when everybody gets here, we stop and we have a candle lighting service mm, for nice. Isaac, and we've done that every year since he died. Uh, and we talk yeah. about who, how old he would be, what, how, you know. In our case, you have to grieve that which you never had because right. he didn't live very long. But our family, our kids, our grandkids were all very deeply involved in his death and in his funeral they were the pallbearers they were about eight or nine years old but they were pallbearers uh they were involved in it and so it's a very meaningful thing for them and now they themselves will come and one of them will always volunteer i want to light the candle you know but we maintain that uh every year at our christmas experience oh that's great because it like i say words uh, ceremony speaks when words fail all right 
And what do you do? Um, do you do anything for uh, birthdays? Well, birthday would be around Christmas time for well, him. Same, so you, yeah, it's his birthday. So it would be the same thing, yeah. yeah. We do put a blanket of uh, greenery on his grave every year. And, uh, you know, we maintain, we, we maintain his presence. Mm-hmm. So, th- so that might be something for these folks out here, you know, in our audience to think about how they can help maintain that presence. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about on the show some ideas. But when we went to break, we were talking about what bereaved people um, need. And one of the things you were talking about was safety. Yeah, uh, what I mean by that is if you boil down everything that all of us, authors have written about grief. It really boils down to permission to grieve. And and I think people need safe places and they need safe people. They need places where it's okay to grieve. This is a place where it is acceptable. Nobody's going to try to stop you. Nobody's going to try to suss you down. And, and you need safe people. And it's very strange. There will be some people that will feel safe to you, and there are others that won't. And it, mm-hmm. and and I cannot explain that why they do. Uh, you know, I, my friend that I'm walking with right now, his daughter was murdered several years ago. Twenty some twenty years ago, her husband was killed in a car wreck, in a plane crash. And uh, the friends that walked with her then are not the ones that are walking with her now. They want to be, but for some reason they don't feel as safe this time, and and she can't explain that either. Mm-hmm. But there will be those people, and that's the reason for having compassionate friends. By the way, that's probably where you're going to meet safe people. I was going to say sometimes we meet we meet new people and have new friends. Yes, and most of the time it will come from new friends, new mm-hmm. people, and I can't explain that, and I hope you can. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but there will be some people that feel safe. Uh, one of the times when I was in New York, a lady said that her, her son had died several years before that. And she said the lady that helped me the most was my friend who said I would call her up or I'd see her and I'd say, you know, I think this happened because of this, this, this. And, this. and she would say, you know, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so the next day I'd see her and I'd say everything I'd tell her the next day would contradict everything I said the day before. And she'd say, you know, you're exactly right. <laughs> you know, so the third day I'd see her and I'd contradict both the other days. And she'd say, you know, you're exactly right. She was very supportive. Yeah. And she said, that's the person to help me the most. What she's saying is, I found a lady that I could be safe with. I could be absolutely crazy for three days. And it didn't. she didn't panic. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. When my brother died, the people that I thought were going to be there for me weren't. Right. And people that I least expected all of a sudden were there. That's right. You don't know who's going to be there for you. That's right. And, and you don't know why they feel safe and the others don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, also, sometimes it's been many years for us now, 23, and some of the people that we knew that were good friends before have come back. Um, I think it's very hard for some people. They just cannot go to that space. It's, it's, it's too right. frightening. It's too scary. It's too to whatever for them Sometimes to walk with you. it brings up some of people's own issues. Like, oh, thank God it wasn't me. It didn't happen to me. Yeah. And also there are people out there who have um, are dealing with people who have unresolved grief themselves. That's a good and point. And if they grieve your grief, they've got to grieve their own, and they just can't do it. That's right. That's a good point. So they, ha- they have to uh, distance themselves from it. Could you talk a little bit about um, acceptance and separation and guilt? Those are three of the things that I've uh, picked up that you were talking about in your book. The uh, uh, the best uh, one of the best outlines of grief that I've heard. Uh, a friend of mine named Paula Loring, who does grief work in San Antonio, Texas, says that 
that grief is when the heart breaks and then when the heart bleeds and then she says when the heart surrenders mm. and then when the heart heals. And I picked up on that word surrender, uh, uh, acceptance, getting to the point where it's okay. One of the times that I was in New York after 9-11 working, a lady walked up to me and gave me a very gorgeous uh, story, a picture. She said her daughter had died of five years before, and she said, my daughter lives on my shoulder. Uh, and said, I, she, I'm, it's very wonderful. She lives in my heart, and I feel like she's sitting on my shoulder. And, but she said she used to be right here, and she held her hand right up in front of her eyes. And mm-hmm. she said that's where she was. And she said every thought was of her 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And she said, I thought I had to keep her there. Mm-hmm. And, and because if I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't remembering her right. I wasn't, I was honoring her, her memory and, and said the rest of the family would go on and it made me angry. And she said the holidays were terrible because the rest of the family want the traditions like they were. But the traditions can't be the same. They have to change. It's not the same. And she said, I had all of that struggle, and I kept her there. And she said, gradually, sometimes she'd begin to slip, and I'd pull her back. Mm -hmm. And she'd slip, and I'd pull her back. The lady that I'm walking with right now, if she comes in one day and she's feeling good, I know the next week she'll feel bad. She'll go home and read her daughter's diaries. I was going to say, is part of that guilt? Yeah, part of it is guilt and part of it is fear. My my friend my friend feels like she only feels like she's really close to her daughter when she's hurting. So in other words, sometimes we probably hold on to the pain longer than we need to because yeah. we're afraid we're in her forget. case. Maybe maybe it's not long. She needs to. She will one day get ready. Uh-huh. That's that's what I'm talking about. Surrender. It, there come this lady said there came a day when it was okay for her to move. Mm-hmm. So how do you know face to face? She called it moving from face to face to heart to heart. She said, from being right in front of my eyes constantly, she moved to my shoulder and my heart. And she, she said the grief journey, she called it from face to face to heart to heart, is very long and it's very tough. But I was picking up on the fact that she said the day came when it was okay for her to, to move, when it was okay. So you relocate the person that's died in just another part of your life. Yes, so that and not she, be, she, she begins to come alive in memory. How long does that usually take? I know well, it's hard uh, to put that's, time frames. That's the remarkable thing. I don't. I don't know that with, that there is a time. I just mm-hmm. tell people you may get up to that place several times before you finally allow it to happen. Mm, I like that. Uh, but uh, you do it in your schedule. There's no mm-hmm. schedule. Mm-hmm. There's no right time to get past that. My friend is five years down the pike from her, right. from her daughter's murder. But you have to understand that the first two three two years or three years. She was waiting for the trial to be over mm-hmm, you know, right. and Very going difficult. through all of that stuff. And so her grieving really is about two years along when you really get down to it. So I'm not panic-stricken that she's not, she still has her daughter in front of her nose. I'm not panic-stricken that it's there. The day will come when it's okay. Which is such an amazing thing for people to hear, and especially professionals in the field. You're not panic-stricken. It'll come in everybody's life at a different time. That's right. When they're ready. People right. don't do anything until they're ready, do they? No, for sure. Well, I know one of the things that Heidi tells people when she speaks to therapists about grief and loss and doctors and those kinds of things, uh, she always says uh, something about if you want instant gratification, bereavement's not the area for you. 
it really right? we don't we don't see our impact maybe for years down the road or maybe we won't even know that you know maybe never it'll eventually happen on their own time yeah i, I tell people if you're going to listen to people if mm-hmm. you're going to listen to people you're going to feel inadequate the rest of your life because when you finish listening you don't know whether you've done anything or not that's mm-hmm. right and when you finish listening and they've moved on they're not going to stop and say you know right. they'll remember you in their heart but they're it's not going to look you <laughs> up because they're busy they've gone on yeah, you finish every session with, I sure hope that was a good session, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, Doug, um, when I was getting ready for the show, and I contacted, I believe, your daughter, Glenda, right? Yes. And uh, she uh, works for Insight Books. Yes. Which is where people can find you on the web, insightbooks.com. Yes. And you have published many books, and they are wonderful books, and I would suggest that you go to that website and take a look at them. And when I talked to Glenda, she said, uh, how about the topic uh, for my dad, the gift of significance? And I wondered what that was about. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. My daughter says I only know three words, and I've written 30 books about them. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Right. And if so one of my words is significance. I discovered that word several years ago. A young woman who had had her husband die when she was very young, remarried, had some children, and then a child died. And she was trying to explain to me the difference between the grief following the death of a mate and the grief following the death of a child. And she said, the grief following the death of a mate is a process of turning loose and saying goodbye. But the grief following the death of a child is a process of hanging on. Mm. Because she said, you don't feel like the child has lived long enough to establish their significance. And so you feel like you have to establish it for the child. And that's why uh, uh, someone who's had a child die wants the name called. They want the child remembered, you know, it's why it's important that we light a candle and call Isaac's name. Well, I took the word significance and began to explore it, and it became bigger and bigger and bigger for me. When bad things happen to us, the first thing we want to do and the first thing we need to do is establish the significance of that event. A little boy can fall down out in the street and hurt his hand. He comes in crying. His mother cleans it off. There's nothing there, but he wants a Band-Aid on it. Then he runs around and shows everybody, says, see my boo-boo, see my boo-boo. Now, you know, after everyone has seen his boo-boo, you can take the bandage off and throw it away. But when he's trying to show it to you, if you won't look at it, he'll kick you in the shins. You know, he's, you've got to see it. He wants that. I call that establishing the significance of what's happened to you. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do when, when a death happens, the significance has about three levels. The first significance level of significance is we need to establish the significance of our loss. And that sounds a little weird because you would think that when someone died, the only thing you'd think about was the person who died, but it isn't. The first thing you think about is what's going to happen to me. And, and what does it mean for us, right? Right. How can I, can I live over this? What's, how will I handle it? You know, will this kill me? Right. And, and it um, feels very selfish. Well, I die. Yeah. Yeah. It Can feels I survive very selfish. This? It feels like you're not thinking properly because, you know, I'm supposed to be thinking about my child. But at first, the first level is look what has happened to my world. Uh, a, a lady came up to me at a Compassion Friends conference, and her son had, had died in a jet ski accident. And she said, I'm so glad you said that because when they brought him to shore, she was there that day, and she said, I knew he was he was dead. The first thing that I thought of was, well, I still have two healthy little girls. Mm. Well, said, you know, was I just dismissing him? I said, no, your mind is helping you 
you know, figure out how you're going to survive. Because mm-hmm. first of all, you're going to try to survive. So the first level is our own survival. And, and isn't that eat. part of Doug saying, you know, like for our, I said, you know, this isn't the way my life was supposed to look. Right. This wasn't supposed to happen to me. Right. Okay. And I, But I want that acknowledged. Mm-hmm. I want somebody to understand when I say that what what I'm saying. I'm saying, look at how badly I'm hurt. Mm-hmm. And I want somebody to say, yeah, that does, that hurts. And then the second level is, then I need to establish the significance of the person. That, mm-hmm. you know, we want the world to know how important this person was, how valuable they were. And and there's kind of an undertow of that, too, and that is you really don't know the value yourself. You know, you don't know what you've lost till you lose it. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's almost like there's an inventory time. You yeah, and one of the things that happens. Off. Yeah, one of the things that happens to the folks at the inventory time too, if is if uh, they're going to get insurance money for it or whatever, they have to have actually have the person valued. Yeah, and, that, and that's financially that's valued. Yeah, nine eleven is full of that, isn't it? It because is, and that's frightening. so painful for people. How do you put a, how do you put a value a monetary value on somebody's life? Yeah, and one person more more much more than how do you do that? You know, Absolutely. it's a, it's a yeah, and 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 the inventory is every day you think of something else, you, you're lost. What? You, well, and to a certain extent, you've lost. I mean, when my brother died, I lost part of my past, I lost part of my present, and I lost my future with sure. him. Sure, yes, but you didn't know how big that was till he was gone. Right. And it's that—that's what I call establishing the significance of the person. I need to know that. The my friend whose daughter was murdered. She said when I first started talking, she when I first started talking to her about significance, she said I really didn't understand it. But she said when I sat through the trial and heard them sit there and try to defend this man because he'd had a bad childhood and he'd had this and he'd had that, and nobody in the whole trial ever said, but look who he murdered. Mm-hmm. She said, all of a sudden, I wanted to scream, I want you to know how significant this person is. Mm-hmm. I want you to know what I lost mm-hmm. and how valuable she was. And the third level is the social significance. We need to know that others remember also. You know, that's why we have funerals, so we all get together and people can say, I love this person also. Nothing feels better to a, a bereaved parent than two years later somebody's calling the child's name and saying, you know, I still miss her or him. Mm-hmm. You know, because that means they had significance out in the world. They really mattered. They really touched well, things. And it's wonderful hearing stories about the person that died, my brother, from people in news stories about what they were like to friends. Yes, yes, because that is establishing their value, their significance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So basically, I've just, I kind of got wrapped up in the word. That's why my daughter says it's one of the only words I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. now, now, how many books have you written on grief? You know, I really don't know. Uh, Are they all? all oh, your? No, I also have written books about having, facing the... the uh, Long-term care decisions with adult with parents, putting parents to having to place a loved one in nursing homes, mm-hmm. uh, how that all works, what the dynamics that it does in families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so those are your two major areas that yes. you've worked in. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so you walk with them in that walk. I have too. a the, the my latest book is actually a book called uh, 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 The Power of Presence, which is all about listening skills. But that really relates to both those areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, people would get those books. They could get them off of Amazon uh, or yeah. go to your insightbooks.com. How would you suggest people access Either way, Either way, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've got to say that your website is more than just a place to get your books. It's, there's a lot of information on your on your website that's well, very it, valuable. Like it's really being upgraded right now, and and in just a few months, it will. We think it'll be far much, so much better. And I will have a. I'll also have a blog going on, in a in a community where people can share, like you have. Very good. Yeah, it has been. Uh, it, I've gotten more out of it than I've given, and and uh, people say how you do that without burning out, and I can't answer that. It just gets better. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I think for me it does too, and I think for Heidi also. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that we are able to walk with people. We don't try to take their burdens on or push them or hold them back. or We just walk along and, and hear what's going on. And, and it's, insp- it's inspiring to see people as they walk down their paths yeah. and they begin to heal. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. So uh, when we went to break, I was asking you about people that are stuck. For our folks out there that are feeling pretty stuck, do you have some thoughts for them? Maybe an anger. Well, I think. I think first of all that I, I I'm very careful <laughs> to to. I take a long time to decide that they're stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. people tend to think that people are stuck, uh, and I don't think they're stuck yet. I think they just haven't decided to allow the movement to happen. And so I, I'm very careful not to jump to that conclusion very quickly. But then there are people who are, are stuck. I think people are stuck because they have never, they've never felt like they've ever actually been understood. Mm-hmm. That I agree, Doug. That basically they, you know, they've, they've every time they've had they've said something, somebody has jumped in with some kind of something solution or how they ought to feel or where they ought to feel. I think, or or not acknowledging their losses that significant. That's right. I, that's true. They don't acknowledge it, and I think I think the number one problem is that they just they just never have ever have felt like somebody really understood. That's my other big word is the, the sense of being understood. Now nobody can really understand you, and I can't understand how somebody feels. Because you're explaining how you feel with words, and and you're explaining feelings, and that's not adequate. But maybe what I really feel like is acceptance. Uh, just, uh, I I think I think the most powerful words in, that we can give to people is uh, the most healing word I know how to say is that must really hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, because when I say that, I'm saying I'm not telling you how to feel. I'm trying to feel with you. And walk with you, and I think as people find those people who just simply under, try to understand what they're feeling, just try to accept their feelings where they are and acknowledge their feelings, I think they move past the stuck part. Now, some people get stuck in anger, and and the problem with anger is that that they don't recognize it as anger most of the time. They they because when we think of anger, we think of temper fits. And anger and grief feels more like hurt or more like deep disappointment or just deep bruising. But all of those feelings are anger, and 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 the problem with anger is it doesn't float well. It needs to it needs to focus somewhere, and and a lot of people focus their anger on you know on their mate or on the doctor or on God, but too many of us turn the anger inside and mm-hmm. focus it internally. And then they begin to 
what I call obsessively play the game of if only. Now everybody plays if some if only. I'm talking about obsessing, and they they build up these very elaborate scaffolds to prove that in some way or other this was their fault. Those are the tough ones because it's hard to get them to come back to realize. Look, you didn't, de- you know, you didn't get your anger out and deal with it, and so it internalized, and now it's in here. And and, and you know, I, I met two ladies in Reno, Nevada, said their mother's the most negative person they've ever met, and she, they talked about it. And I, so I called them a hotel lobby after over and said, "What does your mother say most to the often?" She said, "The thing they, she says all the time is." that her life stopped the day her little boy died. Mm. And they said, you know, she still has us, and said our brother died 61 years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's (laughs) one that you talk about, right, Heidi, with the siblings? Absolutely. That's the worst thing you can say to your children, because then they feel like, well, am I not worth living for? That's right. But I said to them, I said, next time she says that, reach over and touch her and just simply say, Mom, how'd that make you feel? Mm, Because nobody's ever heard that. Mm-hmm. No, you know everybody's told her what it's been sixty-one years. <laughs> right, right. She's Instead of allowing them to deal with where they are. Right, and and also, folks out there, remember, you did the best you could with what you had, what you knew at the time. Yes. And I like the idea that that most of us are not stuck. People have just decided not to let the movement happen yet. That's right. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think if you're feeling stuck out there, me, I love what you're saying because it's you're not stuck. Mm-hmm. When you're ready, you'll move. Yeah, I really think you will. Uh, because I think basically now when when I've dealt with people that are long-term stuck, I don't say, hey, you're stuck. I just simply say, you know, what are you getting out of being where you are? Mm, I like that. Well, That's a good question. I'm not getting anything. Yeah, you are. You're getting something out of being there. You wouldn't be there. My friend who goes home and reads the diaries, she what she's getting out of it, that's when she feels closest to her daughter. Mm-hmm. It was when she's crying and hurting, and she's afraid that if she stops that, she won't feel that close to her anymore. And that's a big step, mm-hmm. but she will take that when she's ready. Yeah, and the idea that maybe she'll kind of be sitting on her shoulder rather than over her eyes when she gets ready to take that step. Yeah. Well, those are newly, really newly bereaved people out there, um, what, three months or whatever, uh, what do you have to say to them? Well, I, uh, the same thing I think we've always said. You just ha- you need to be sure to find a warm, safe place where you can cry when you want to cry, and nobody's going to try to stop that. Uh, don't let anybody take your grief away from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful way. Well, do you have any special thoughts for um, our audience out there before we close the show? Well, you've just about drained me of all my pet. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many amazing things you've said. I've been writing 100 miles an hour, Doug. I'm <laughs> telling you. You're most kind. You probably have, I've got to get some of your stuff right. Have you read, written some stuff? <laughs> well, we're working on it. in the process. <laughs> Are you? But, you know, I can really you know, identify with some of the things you're saying about being unacknowledged, overlooked, and, never, and not understood. As a bereaved sibling, we as siblings often feel that way. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I say all the time, when I start a speech anymore, I put a bucket, I hand somebody a bucket, and I say the bucket represents your feelings. What are you, what, what are you feeling after, after a death? And they begin to tell me, and the audience begins to tell me, and then I say, what are you thinking? Well, we talk about the thoughts. What are the frustrations in your bucket? And what, finally we decided that the bucket is full. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely full. 
And then I say, but the problem is I come along and I have a bucket also. And my bucket's full of platitudes and cheery-up messages and things mm-hmm. you ought to think and things you ought to do. And I want to just come and come by and pour them in your bucket. But the problem is your bucket's full. There's no room in your bucket for what's in my bucket. And, and worse than that is I'm scared to death of your bucket mm-hmm. because... If I get in your bucket, you might cry, and I wouldn't know how to stop you. And I said, yeah, I, I tell the story of a, a compassionate friends group where a lady, I was supposed to talk about guilt and grief, guilt and anger, and the lady I asked what she felt guilty about, she said, all the way at the hospital, my son begged me to turn around and go back. He didn't want the transplant. He was afraid. And, I, and she said, I didn't turn around, and he died. Mm-hmm. And I said, how many times has someone said to you, well, he would have died anyway without the surgery? Or how many times have they said, you were acting out of love? She said, many. And I said, does that help? She said, no. I said, would it help if I came over and hugged you? And said, that must really hurt. Mm-hmm. She says, yeah, that would help. Now, mm-hmm. that would help why? It would help because I'm getting in your bucket with you. Ah, Great. And I learned this, the one statement, and that is, healing always begins in the other person's bucket. never begins in our bucket. Oh, that's a great thought. Well, Absolutely. Doug Manning, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It's been a wonderful show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.